Welcome to the Data Stack Show. Each week, we explore the world of data by talking to the people shaping its future. You'll learn about new data technology and trends and how data teams and processes are run at top companies. The Data Stack Show is brought to you by Rudderstack, one platform for all your customer data pipelines. Learn more at rudderstack.com. And don't forget, we're hiring for all sorts of roles. Welcome to the Data Stack Show. This episode you're about to hear is actually, it was originally recorded as a live stream and we collected some of the top minds working in the reverse ETL space. And we just wanted to pick their brains about this technology that, you know, has probably been built internally for a long time by companies, but is now being turned into SaaS and is doing some interesting things. Costas, I'm really interested to ask this panel about some of the technical challenges of building these things at scale. A lot of times, you know, I think if these were internal builds, you know, maybe like a one-to-one connection, you're sort of dealing with, you know, a a pretty simple pipeline. But doing this at scale across integrations is hard. So I want to hear about what technical challenges they're dealing with. How about you? Yeah, I want to ask them, when are we doing finally get like a proper name for this technology? (laughs) This this reverse ETL thing needs to stock, like. Yes. <laughs> so wrong. So yeah, I'll I'll try to see what they're thinking about that and what's the timeline to get like a better name. Great. Let's dig in. That's a marketing problem. So we're going into pretty uncharted territories here, <laughs> but I, I love it. All right, let's dig in. Let's do it. Welcome to the second Data Stack Show live stream. This is super fun. We did this once before, and we like to collect some of the best minds uh, in the industry around certain topics and just pick everyone's brains. And the topic for this live stream is reverse ETL, which is kind of a new term in the industry, but actually something that people have have been doing for a while, which we'll talk about. And we have some people who I'm just so excited to have on the show, names that I've followed for a long time personally. I know Costas has as well. So let's just do some quick intros. Tejas, do you want to start off and uh, give a quick intro? Yeah, sure. So, hey, everyone, I'm Tejas, one of the founders of PyTouch. We're one of the players in the reverse ETL space and data activation, basically helping companies take data from the data warehouse and use it across all the operational processes and SaaS processes in their business. Before founding Hightouch, I was actually an early engineer in segment. So my experience sort of in the data vendor space dates back to like seven, eight years ago before terms like CDP and stuff like that existed and kind of saw the rise of cloud data warehouses there and, and realized that there was an opportunity to, to bridge some of the challenges we were solving at segment and, and what was happening in the data warehousing space with, with companies building a source of truth in the warehouse. So super excited to be on the show today. Obviously follow all the companies in here super closely and excited to have a, a live coffee chat. Great. It's going to be great. All right, Boris, you're next in the window on Zoom. So take it away. Cool. Hey, I'm Boris. I'm uh, the founder of a company called Census. We started building what what we now call reverse ETL back in 2018 when there was no name for this. (laughs) And we, you know, we've always wanted to help companies like get the most out of their data. And a lot of it tends to be locked away in analytics and warehouses, which is what we were trying to solve. So get that in the hands of salespeople, marketing people, support people, finance people, all those kinds of things. And data pipelines are the way to do that. So yeah, before that, I've always been a tool builder. I used to work at Microsoft. And before that, between Census and Microsoft, I started another company before this that that was kind of tangentially related uh, called Meldium. Very cool. All right, uh, Tridi. 
Hi, everyone. I go to pretty by start, but I, I lead the product-led group team at Workado. And if you're unfamiliar with Workado, it's an enterprise automation platform. We have been in the business for over eight years and uh, like as an enterprise automation platform in the customers, we have over 7,000 customers that use this for weird automating various business processes by connecting their cloud on-prem uh, stack. But uh, a very interesting pattern in that happens to be reverse ETL. As a matter of fact, we released the work automation index report last year and like in, in, in addition to all the traditional processes like auto to cash, employ onboarding, procure to pay, report to report, the lead management and others, reverse ETL was trending out. It was on the top 10. And reverse ETL means uh, very many things to very many people. Uh, so very excited to join this forum and with Regis, process uh, and Boris to learn more and also uh, learn more from the questions that we get from the audience. Thanks for adding me, uh, Eric. Yeah, of course. So I'll start it off with a question. Trudy, you brought this up when we were prepping uh, for the episode, but I'd love to hear from each of you what what has been driving the trend behind what we call reverse ETL. And maybe we'll get to whether reverse ETL is the, is the proper term for it, you know, because, you know, we've had some conversations with Boris about whether that encompasses, you know, sort of the 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 spectrum of of problems that this technology solves. But, you know, we sort of have like the event stream, you know, technology solved the behavioral data issue and sort of syndicated that to the stack. ETL allowed you to collect all the data from all the disparate parts of the stack. And really a lot of those drove, you know, sort of a one-off triggers or the main use case was BI, right? Like we're just trying to understand like how users are behaving and how the business is performing. And so why don't we start off by like, what what are you seeing? Like what's pulling reverse ETL technology from your product teams in terms of use cases on the ground? So why don't we just, let's just go in the order that that we did intros with. So Tejas, what are you seeing? Cool. Yeah. So I I would say across use cases, honestly, it's pretty exciting because we're seeing use cases across pretty much all business teams in an organization and and far, far more use cases in terms of breadth than we imagined when we actually founded the company. So when we started high touch, like, you know, we had a perspective that was heavily influenced by our work at Stegman and we thought marketing would be one of the 90% use case of the product. And it turns out sales and marketing and go to market is still probably about like 70% of our use cases in the market, but we're also serving, you know, finance teams who need rich data in their ERP systems to close out the books faster and, and not, you know, pass around CSVs across the organization or, or product teams that need information from your analytics stack to be able to power certain personalized customer experiences inside of their applications. But overall, I would say the most exciting part about reverse CTL and data activation as a, as a whole, when I think about the category is that we're oftentimes not just replacing, you know, scripts written by engineers or automation built by engineers, but we're actually unlocking brand new business use cases, brand new value and brand new like growth and revenue opportunities for companies using the wealth of data that they have already in their data warehouse. And that's really what I think has caught the attention of the market and, and excited companies to jump right in and see what can they do with the resources and data they already have to drive growth. Great. Boris. Yeah, I think the, 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 the breadth of scenarios has always been the kind of most exciting thing here. You know, when we envisioned the platform, we, we kind of thought about it as something very horizontal. You know, I tend to think about 
the, the fact that the way people wire data together shouldn't be piecemeal and they should think about where can they centralize as much data as possible and get a source of truth and then federate that to as many kind of ends of the organization as possible. And to me, that's the story of, that's actually the goal of SaaS going back 20 years, which is to empower every individual in a company. And so whether that's yeah, finance or sales, you want, you want the right data. You want data you can trust. And you want that in the operational tool where you do your work, right? Rather than having to open up five tabs. And so the, this idea, so, so, so what I've seen over the last few years working on, on this is that analytics, by virtue of a lot of other kind of trends and, and, and behaviors on the data team, has become host to the best data in the company right? The, hmm. the most complete data, the most uh, trustworthy data. It's the data that, I mean, ultimately you're going to use to report to Wall Street to some degree, right? And so... Like has the most level of scrutiny probably. Exactly, exactly. And so the, the, the ability to operationalize that data, right? To take that data and make it kind of available to every part of the company has been super exciting and continues to grow. And so Funny enough, we, we didn't start with a kind of like marketing bent back in 2018. We actually started with product like growth and just kind of thinking about where you have software. Yeah, when you have software as your core a kind of asset, uh, the way you take it to the market is just different, right? And I don't hmm. know, it was personal frustration back then about salespeople not knowing what users are doing in the product. And I think, funny enough, like I think Segment had done a great job of connecting marketers to, to, to the engineering side. But sales was like just left left behind. Uh, so our early scenarios were all on the sales side, and then that has since oh, expanded. That's so interesting. Yeah. yeah, and that has since expanded to literally. I I don't know. You can't even. I, I don't know if I could summarize it in any kind of set. Right. It's like from support to finance, product to marketing. It's like yep. everyone kind of wants to depend on on this data. Interesting. And, and data organizations want to get more out of the asset that they've invested in. Right. And so that to me is the is the exciting story. Like I'm a tool builder, right? And so you're trying to make someone else a more amazing version of themselves. And like data teams have a lot to offer. Uh, and it was locked away in charts. And, you know, the idea was like, let's get this into operational tools. Very cool. All right, Tridi. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, uh, like what they just in the Boris summarized, uh, captures a lot. I'll just say maybe add to that in a different way. It's essentially the trends we see like over the last several decades, decades, like ETL had been a way to collect data from various sources, uh, uh, like business application, business systems, and move it into a single repository to open bars calling them to uh, uh, create a source of truth that you can rely on, right? But, and there's always been like, if you ask any company, any, any individual, like, if you, how do you make decisions? So we are data driven. And the, the nature of data driven or the way to solve data being data driven is was always has always been around to the to a great degree still is like put uh, to like tanner look over the top of your uh, this phenomenal repository of data and run visualizations dashboards repos and that makes you data driven and nothing could be further from the truth just looking at the data you know everyone has their own interpretation on what that is uh and the, what's changing now is is People want access to that data without having to go to, you know, from the tools that are already used, whether it be Salesforce, Marketo, whether it be Pendip, uh, for like product analytics, and it did mix panel with file. And um, 
So one is that people want access to insights from where they are working rather than having to relearn and uh, go to another tool to download those reports. So that's one. The second trend that we see is access to information more in real time rather than a retail report or you know, daily reports and such. As things happen when a customer churns those changes, people want to take action. Like the, the CSM wants to reach out to them and say, hey, what's happening? You know, if there's a drop in activity, the VEs want to reach out, you know, the GTM team, the teams want to reach out. If there's a change in upsell or process goals, you want to trigger off campaigns. So those kind of automations being in real time, mainly get more event driven. That's driving some of these patterns around how you become truly data driven rather than just looking at visualization, right? So those are, those are some, and like, you know, and if you see, apply those trends, like one business function would not want to act on these things in real time. It's not just for, you know, the GTM teams, it's also finance. And also the other, other, the third most important, if not the most, maybe one of the other important ones is the innovation of a data warehouse or a data lake to be at the same level as of any other business application. It's no longer the black box, you know. Oh, sure. Yeah. That you need to put the prism on top yep. to look at like what it looks like. <laughs> it's been, and it's being elevated to another business application as important or sometimes sure. more important than a CRL, right? Uh, so that is the other trend. So how do you make that data accessible in real time across all business functions to make them truly data-driven than rely on uh, like what has been traditionally business intelligence? And that's what's driving these trends uh, from what we see with our customers. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, <laughs> Data-driven is such a loaded term, right? Like it's it's almost become hollow because it's used so much in you know marketing terminology and for, you know and for, all, and for all decades that. now, right? For decades, it probably, right? it probably goes back to the information superhighway, right? And um, I like, I mean, maybe this isn't okay, but I'm going to take a little bit of a dig at like the big consultancies, right? Because it's like digital transformation. You know, it's like man, the billions of dollars that people have made, like just trying to. <laughs> Connect some pipes to like help companies become more data driven. Yeah, but digital transformation is such a catch all, right? It, 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 it is it's a catch all, and, and data driven is just as much of a catch all. <laughs> That's true. I, I suppose you're right. But digital transformation, like the new digital transformation, even bigger. Like that one feels even more all encompassing because it's like it, it means computers, right? It just means like <laughs> with computers. Like I think yeah. that 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 yeah, I mean, data could be sheets of paper. So I guess yeah. Data, it could be even bigger, I suppose. No, yeah, I agree. I think maybe, I mean, I think at least one big underpinning of digital transformation is sort of the move from on-prem on-prem to cloud, you know, which is, is certainly non-trivial, especially in the enterprise. But actually, on that note, what I'd love to do here is I'd love to get a little bit technical. So, you know, I remember when, you know, there were companies sending data out of Redshift into like, SaaS applications, right? Like a, a good while ago, the idea of sort of getting data out of a warehouse and into some sort of SaaS application isn't isn't new, right? Like, and I think we all would agree that like- I mean, okay, data like, integration has been going on. Exactly. Actually, right? say <clears throat> data integration has been a thing people have been doing for decades. Sure, yeah, yeah. So, so it's not like reverse ETL is like, you know, someone invented a completely novel way of like sending data from point A to point B, right? Like it's been happening. But it's painful, right? And so like we're building SaaS around that, which is super exciting. But 
there are still a lot of companies struggling with the pain of like trying to get the data out of the warehouse and, and into, into SaaS applications. And what I'd love to know is, because I think a lot of our listeners are you know, either data engineers or on data teams who have experienced the pain of trying to build by themselves, experienced the want of not having the budget or the bandwidth to build that themselves, or grew up in an age where like the SaaS just wasn't available to make that easy to them, right? And so like, that's sort of just painful, right? We're going to deal with it. And like downstream teams are going to be annoyed. But if anyone's built anything like that, you know, generally, I think it would be ad hoc inside of a company. So so you sort of have like a bespoke pipeline, probably like one-to-one or like one-to-a-few. But you're building like really robust pipelines that are taking, you know, sort of tables or data in the warehouse, and then you're fanning them out to like a huge number of tools, and you're doing this at scale in a cloud SaaS format, right? And so I'm genuinely curious, like, like, what are the problems that you're facing trying to do that? Especially, you know, if anyone's done this, you know, sort of ad hoc or bespoke, like in a company, like help them understand what does it take to do this at scale? I mean, there's a bunch of things. Oh, <laughs> I mean, there's a bunch of things you have to factor in if you're going to do this yourself, right? There's, and, and I think we're all going to probably talk about some similar things here, but the, the first thing you got to deal with is errors, right? Just like things fail way more than you might predict, right? So the great fallacy of APIs going back again, 20, 30 years is, is like, oh, they just work. Nope. They don't just work. So, so, so things fail. And building in recovery is significantly more difficult, I would say, than simply writing the code to sync data, right? So that's one. Two is like scale, right? So size. So, so dealing with 10 rows is totally different than a thousand, totally different than a million, different than a billion, right? Hmm. And people need to sync large amounts of data. Our users, like our companies have like on the order of 500 plus million users, right? So so the, you have to be able to do this at scale and with destinations that don't handle scale particularly well. Uh, APIs always work there. <laughs> I mean, it depends, right? Some are really, really good. Do you know which product is unbelievably good at scale? Facebook. Facebook will happily eat like hundreds of millions of records in like a snap, right? But Marketo? Uh, Marketo, <laughs> other end of the spectrum. Other end of the spectrum. Uh, I like to joke about Facebook because it's like, you don't think about it, but it's like, it's, the reason it's so fast is like they already have all the data. So, yeah. so they're just going, check. They're just going, yep, we know who you're talking about. But anyway. Another podcast, another podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so scale is, you know, how you stitch data incremental, like into a system, how you do it in the right kind of order with minimizing API usage, all these kinds of things is like probably the second thing that if you're going to do this yourself, you have to think about. Third is probably like monitoring all this, right? Things break. Your stuff will break. Now, I think there, things have a lot of, have improved in our market broadly. Like you can use, you know, kind of orchestration tools that have good, you know, some learning for you, but you have to be monitorable, right? And that's really not mm. a trivial amount of work. It's the same reason engineers don't tend to build new relic or Datadog themselves, right? Yep. Th- th- that in itself is, 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 is expensive. And so that's a huge part of our software as well, right? Because you want these things to be alertable, monitorable, et cetera. And then last I'd say is, I think, I don't know if, if you all have seen something different, but like most internal versions of this are, you, you know, not manageable by anyone other than the person who wrote it. <laughs> Whereas the whole point, right? Yeah. Pretty, you talked about this, right? You talked about the democratization of, of, of data and analytics and people want to be able to access these things. And if you're going to build this yourself, are you going to build the UI to make it 
easily mappable sure. so that people can modify these things without having to call you, right? Like that is probably the, the, the all the things you would have to build to, to do this well yourself. Yep. Love it. Okay. I'm going to slightly modify the question as I pass it on to Teos and then Tejas, sorry, and then, and then Tridi. But okay. So here's the slight modification. How do you decide what you manage and then what you hand off to the user and or like where are the compromises there, right? So if you think about incremental syncs, like are there decisions that you need to make on behalf of the user or are there like use cases where you like make that decision for them? Like those are actually fairly challenging when you think about data at scale. So yeah, I would just love to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, it's it's a great question. So one thing that I think has been really powerful about the tools in the reverse field ecosystem is giving the users a lot of flexibility, but also a lot of guardrails at the same time. So one thing that we handle out of the box or is also tapped on as well is like diffing. So I think typically when companies build a script like this in-house, they'll just kind of build a, a loop over the data in the warehouse and call an API to go update it or upsert it into a destination. And it, it remains pretty basic. And then a challenge comes up, the destination API can only accept a re, you know, data at a certain rate and you need to, you know, only send updated data, but you don't have a clear like updated app timestamp and say your data warehouse or something like that. So. One thing that we've handled out of the box is it's different for our customers where, you know, high touch can actually, you know, automatically only send changes to some of these downstream, to all these downstream destinations, instead of sending all the data every time. And with diffing, there's a ton of nuances. So, you know, we support multiple mechanisms for diffing. So one that we support is like dipping inside of the customer's warehouse where data that's being, being uh, synced over is actually written back to the warehouse and, and joined against in the process of syncing to a downstream destination. Oh, interesting. Okay. But for not all, not for all data warehouses, it's the best approach. I mean, like certain databases that our customers connect with, writing back to it isn't as favorable as a cloud data warehouse, like a Google BigQuery or Snowflake where storage is separate from compute. So if you're thinking about like a Redshift, this may not be the most favorable approach or even more of a you know, transactional or a production database, like an Elasticsearch or even like a production Postgres, you know, that might not be something that a customer is okay with. So. We also do support other mechanisms of power with stiffing, like writing the data back to like a customer's S3 bucket, for example. And even depending on the data warehouse we use, we support like even more options, like for example, leveraging timestamp partition keys and something like a Redshift or Google BigQuery to automatically do you know, more intelligent, faster diffing for stuff like event forwarding use cases. So one thing I would say is like with building reverse ETL platforms, we have a lot of features kind of built out of the box where, where companies don't have to implement this stuff, but then still allow them to kind of see more and dial in and, and control how it works uh, if they need to for their use case. So I think the same defaults with a lot of customizability is a, is a general approach that we've been taking to building our software and one that companies have really appreciated versus say other players in the market with like CDPs and whatnot. Yeah, super interesting. Okay, uh, Trudy, you're going to have the last word here, but you can only answer this in, in two sentences, Tejas, because I just have a quick diversion here. I said I was going to get technical, but of course, I'm trying to get more philosophical. Maybe you only have two sentences. But here's the question, though. Does the user care, right? And the reason I ask that is because, like, how well, you, you build your product. By the user. <laughs> no, this is going to be a big rabbit hole. But, like, those are really complicated, like, things that you're you're discussing, right? Like, diffing across, okay, like, warehouse, right? Like general term, general tool. When we talk about diffing, like very specific, right? And like very specific product problems. Sure. And genuinely, I'm, I'm interested in like, do, 
are you, do your users like care about that? You know, sort of like the tuning question, right? Like, yeah, you can get software running, but like tuning, it's like a different skill set. We talked about the various use cases, like, like who, who's, you know, within like a, uh, the traditional ETL, the team was always centralized, right? So we talked about this discussion around the jurisdiction, like who's owning these, uh, if I can call them reverse ETL pipelines, right? Like if it's the GTM team that owns it, like, do they really care about these control and the, you know, the extensibility and such? Probably not as much, right? But there are other teams, like maybe the product or data engineering teams that need a lot more control and flexibility. So the answer is depending on what the, what this reverse ETL pipeline serves, the needs will be different. The personas that are using and building these are different and they, they will require like, you know, some places like the almond box sink and things work just fine. Some like, you know, and it, it's not just for reverse ETL, like take, uh, uh, the example of Salesforce marketer integrations, that out of box integrations just do fire. But then there are some cases where you need to did you there are some cases you need to uh, like aggregate, do some uh, look up with some third party application, uh, like depending on the nature of transformation where you need a lot more control, right? So that those are places, and then you need to also create some reusable components that you can apply and standardize across um, uh, multiple pipelines. And in those cases, we will care about more control and flexibility. But I, I just wanted to add, you know, I, I think uh, Boris uh, touched upon a few things that are very important when you ask this question. What should the product do and what should the user do? Yeah. And to, to for in the era we live in, right? The, the, like, at least like how we believe the philosophy is the product has to do more so the users can get it done more. What does that mean? Uh, what you know, and, uh, that's not just a sound bite. What does that mean? One is like when you're looking at like whether it be reverse ETL or uh, any form of uh, data uh, uh, movement, the number of sources the product can connect to, like pre built connectivity, right? Both from a source, right? How, like they just brought up like how Snowflake works is very different from how BigQuery works, right? Snowflake may bring in their like, capability around streaming, BigQuery not so much, right? So the product has to take care of those things. On the destination side, Salesforce offers like bulk APIs to ingest much faster, right? When it's sensibly into our roast, it does market not as much, NetSuite not as much, right? So the product has to do more to do that buffering, uh, the queuing and size. So the user doesn't have to worry about those things. So that, that's one very important part, the ability, the breadth of connectors, like on both sides, the source system, source databases and the destination. The other point that Boris brought up, like with any pipeline, bad things happen, errors happen. And if the product is, doesn't provide the ability to selfie, recover, and you know, the pre-build monitoring tools to troubleshoot, even not troubleshoot, like uh, auto-correct in some ways, it puts a lot of burden on the developer, right? And then it requires specialists to come in. So those are the things the product needs to do more of. What should the user focus on? is more the business logic. Like what is the outcome that we want to drive, right? And like, uh, we need to, uh, I, I need to move these set of records when for an upsell campaign, I need to look at this data in this data table, like monitor for upscale forms, 175 and whatnot. And then, you know, take that list out and move it into a marketing campaign. They should focus just on the business logic and how quickly can, they can configure. 
The second part, the more they're able to integrate, you know, like business processes change dynamically every week, every month, the ability to iterate. So it should not be brittle, right? It should not be brittle. The ability to iterate and be agile about it is also something the products should support. So I'll put it this way. So, and all the products that we are like represent here and the modern ones that are coming up, they have to have parity in terms of experience with what these end users are using. What I mean by that is it's more configuration driven than or click driven than code driven, right? So like Salesforce marketer, you can do most of the things to clicks rather than have to write any books, but also provide the extensibility where you need code, you know, whether it be some Python scripting, some pre-existing scripts that you may want to use, you're able to pull that in. So it doesn't put you in a box. Uh, so that, those are things uh, that drive adoption of solutions like these. Guys, I have a question that is related with something that was mentioned a little bit earlier, that nothing is like extremely new, right? Like it's not like the first time that the market out there had like to move data from point A to point B and even like push the data back to the downstream applications. But I would like to ask all three of you about like two specific cases of products. And I will start with the jazz because he's coming from segment. So the two products that I want to ask you about, one is Looker Actions and the other one is Persona, right? And the reason that I'm focusing on these two is because these two products are not that, I mean, they were not created that back in the past, like compared to when you started, right? But why we don't hear about them, like in a way, why they didn't succeed in creating the category or uh, leading the category, let's say. So that's just you first, yeah. then I'll ask the rest of the. Cool. Yeah, I can like, kick it off. So this is a super timely question because I was actually one of the first engineers working on second percent of this with my co-founder and CTO at, at High Touch. So first I'll take Looker Actions. Honestly, Looker Actions had a, had a pretty brilliant idea, uh, which was, you know, one of the first, uh, I think one of the first offerings to the market that they started evangelizing this idea of reverse ETLing, which was, you know, we're analyzing stuff in Looker and there should be a way to take these insights and put it into like the other tools that the rest of the business teams look at and not just have the business teams have to look at a Looker dashboard or a Looker report every single time. You should be able to use that information more live. That is really the concept between reverse ETL, behind reverse ETL today. I would say there's a couple of reasons it didn't really pan out. I mean, one, honestly, I would say it's just like resource allocation. Like if you take a look at the Looker action destinations, they just have like a lot of limitations. Like I think the Braze destination, for example, can only handle like results up to 200 rows. They don't really do diffing in their infrastructure. They don't really have much visibility or observability, the kind of sync mapping interface that customers expect for like a, a more modern reverse ETL platform. Is just like not there in Looker Actions. So I think really the reason it didn't take off is because activation, uh, like data activation, is just a separate technical problem in a sec separate technical space than uh, data analytics. And I don't think that like the team working on Looker Actions really treated it as such and invested in invested in building Looker Actions to the same product perfection and, and degree and thoughtfulness that kind of best of breed solutions have come out to the market with, like high touch and census, for example. So that's the reason I think Looker Actions didn't pan out. There's also some parts of that, about it, which is that tons of people don't use Looker and want to tap into data in their data warehouse. But I actually think even tons of our customers do use Looker. And, and the real reason, you know, it didn't get very far was just product quality and product design at the end of the day. When I think about segment personas, it's actually different. 
Segment personas, for anyone who doesn't know, basically it says, okay, you're tracking all this event data into segment. It's being forwarded to all these different downstream tools, but we want to provide marketing teams and, and growth teams and teams like this, a central place inside of the segment product where all the user data is aggregated into these profiles that you can then, you know, build upon in a WYSIWYG way. So add some computed traits like number of orders in the last month to one or LTV, and then also build audiences on top of these uh, profiles and sync them out to different tools. So really, if you think about it, uh, segment personas was almost built, it was building its own source of truth off segment data within the segment product. And I think what the market has really realized is that the source of truth is not going to be in any sort of proprietary vendor or any sort of SaaS application or follow any sort of spec of what a user should look like in segment or what an event should look like or what a shopping cart should look like. It's going to be in the data warehouse where companies are able to get all the data into it via you know, numerous different ETL vendors where there's a standard that, that all software is kind of integrating on top of, transform it freely using software like DBT, for example, in the ELT stack. And then uh, once they know what a customer 360 view kind of looks like in the data warehouse, sync it out to all the different de downstream destinations. So honestly, I would say the reason segment personas primarily didn't pan out, I would say is just because it was built on the wrong source of truth, right? It was built directly on top of segment as a source of truth with the warehouse as kind of like a side afterthought. Whereas what I think has really become clear in the last five to seven years is that companies want to use the data warehouse as a source of truth. That's where all the data will be. And that's where the best data will be kind of as Boris mentioned earlier. And that's really the trend that reverse ETL and data activation is riding on. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. And actually based on your experience at segment, because this is something that like I've been thinking like from time to time, do you think that the way that personas like were implemented based on the, this single source of truth that was like the segment itself was also like a result of, let's say timing, like when segment yeah. actually started as a combine entirely. Yeah, I, 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 did, I say this time and time again. So I think, you know, the approach that CDP solutions like Segment took, you know, back when I worked there or you know, seven, eight years ago when the solutions were started to be designed is not, was not wrong for the time. If yeah. you looked at data warehouse usage at the time, I mean, companies like Spillplake just add like a, you know, less than a hundred customers when I joined Segment, honestly. And unless you were in the enterprise, you weren't really heavily using the data warehouse, BI culture and solutions like Looker were just popping up. If you went to a company and said, hey, we're building reverse ETL, we're going to allow you to take data from your data warehouse and feed it all into these SaaS tools to solve problem A you have on marketing or problem B you have in sales. Technically that works. Like the software would work just as well then as, as it did today in a lot of sense as a technical solution. But when you think of the, the fit, like the product market fit for companies, they just didn't have the data in the warehouse in the first place. They weren't building, you know, the kind of models of what it means to be a customer. How much are they paying us? Are they a high value or low value user? Just, you know, the, all the prerequisite steps weren't done yet. So it just didn't make sense for that to be the way that companies solve data activation problems all the way back five, six, seven years ago. So I don't think the way CDPs approach the problem was incorrect at all. I think it's just a different approach for a different time. And now that companies have made this massive investment in data warehousing and the modern data stack, everyone's looking for how can I drive more value from it? How can I use all the data I have? And all the data models I've built to drive growth and in reverse ETL and data activation is really the, the answer to that, that that makes sense for businesses at this time. Mm -hmm. well, Sandy, there, there, there's a, I, I could not agree more with that. Like most of these things end up with good decisions in, in, their, in their context, right? Uh, even I would say, since you talked about nothing is new under the sun, right? Long before any of those products, like people were integrating data 
And it made sense to do it, you know, from A to B without a warehouse. Like the, 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 it wouldn't have, you would have been an incorrect decision to kind of design with a warehouse bias, right? Like we, we did something in 2018 that was like almost weird for its time, which is like, we, we put all of our products capabilities inside the warehouse, right? Which was unheard of for a SaaS product at the time. So it's like, you can cut the cord of census that all our data is actually sitting in your warehouse. Because I felt like, you know, there's a secular trend towards owning your data, which Tay just kind of mentioned. I, I think those are much larger trends than even just a, a data stack trend, right? Yep. You, 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 you're from Greece. Like Europe has led the way, but there's a general trend towards owning your data, making sure it's not locked away in a proprietary platform, right? And the data warehouses have just been this perfect uh, uh, piece of infrastructure for that. Mm-hmm. And then if you think about, I, I tend to think about the humans involved a lot as opposed to just the tech, right? And I, I know it's weird for technologists, but Segment was a brilliant bridge between engineering and marketing. Mm-hmm. And, right, Tejas, is that, would you yeah, understand that? I would say that's accurate. Like product engineering in particular, right. is the big differentiation. Right, right. And it, you know, when we, when we started, it was, we were not trying to be a bridge between product engineering and marketing. We're trying to be a bridge between the data team writ large and at the we started in you know sales, but eventually all, all teams. But it was really about putting the data team at the center, right? And, you know, Looker, of course, cared about the data team, obviously, but it cared primarily about this like batch analysis, you know, explore some reports about what happened last quarter. And this idea of taking the data team and making them a central pillar of the company uh, that they're operationalizing their work, that they are driving in the truest sense, Eric, right? Like driving the business, that, that is a different relationship. And if you had tried to build that relationship 10 years ago or seven, eight years ago, the data team was too too small, uh, didn't have enough tools, uh, wouldn't have had the, the, the kind of the buy-in from the C-suite to, to own this part of the, the company. Well, and the so, data wasn't, wasn't actually centralized, really. I mean- but Yeah, but all these things kind of build on each other, right? But, but I think- sure. It's not just the data centralized now, it's that data teams and I think CEOs around the world are realizing like, I need to give this team more, uh, more influence in my company because mm. good things happen when I do, right? Yep. So you needed a new bridge between them and everybody else, right? So yep. that's kind of like why we have, you know, kind of, we talk a lot about the word analytics because it's like, that's kind of the lingua franca of data teams is the word analytics. And it's like, let's operationalize that, right? So, yeah, I think outside of the, the core data team as well, it's just the, you know, the data enabled personas in organizations just have a, a much more powerful tool set that they, than they did 10 years ago. Like totally. obviously, you know, marketing operations analysts, marketing analysts, sales analysts, those, those roles existed 10 years ago as well. But if you look at the tools they were using, they were using Google Analytics, Omniture, Google's, you know, Excel, like tools like that, Salesforce reports. They didn't have the power of the data warehouse. They weren't leveraging BI. They didn't have knowledge or even access to SQL queries, like yep. access to a place to run SQL queries. And that has drastically changed to it to to say like, you know, it's a lot easier for for any business user to find someone nearby them, like sits nearby them in the office that that can write SQL or that can use a BI tool than someone who can code. And and that wasn't really true 10 years ago, I'd say. Costa, I was I was talking to someone the other day. How many people do you think have the title have SQL in their skills, but no other programming languages on LinkedIn? I don't know, right? That's a great question. <laughs> That's a good question. I would assume- You have to listen. I, I'm going to tell you, but if you listen to my next 
published podcast, you will discover it in that. Like as a percentage or like? No, no, no. Just number of humans. Number of humans number. on LinkedIn who state SQL as a skill, but not what the rest of us here would probably call a programming. Yeah, number of humans. This is great. This is like okay. Wits and Wagers. You know, like the... Wits and Wagers is a fun game. It's a great game. <laughs> well, the question was for you, Costas. I'm, I'm trying yeah. to answer it. Yeah, I don't know. I would assume just, that... Just give us a number. That's way more fun if you try to give a number. <laughs> give a number? Uh, I don't know. Like, I, I mean, uh, a number. You're failing later. At least give it a number. Let's say two thousand yeah. of all LinkedIn users. So if LinkedIn has like uh, like 700 million users, like 14 million or so. Whoa, nice. That's high. That's, that's high. I like that's that. High. I think that's high too. I was going to say like... I don't know anything though. <laughs> <laughs> Two to four million was my guess, but that's a, I think the trading your math like six figures to be honest. Yeah. So, I think I would have guessed same as you, but it's it's on the order of five million. Wow, that that's great. Pretty great, right? Great for us. <laughs> great for us. <laughs> I'm not kidding. After back to your question, the need for like you know like it's like the the. This pattern has existed long before it started getting branded as reverse EGLs. The difference is how it has been fulfilled in the past, right? It has been fulfilled with CSG exposed, right? It has been fulfilled with CSG exposed, skin quotes, and things like yeah. that, right? And and who who was able to do that? Like who was able to do that in the past is like these centralized data teams or people who are very you know competent uh, with databases and such, right? Not for reason of, uh, not only for the reason of knowing SQL, just from a compliance and security standpoint, you didn't have access to these systems of record, right? So what has changed, like, and you know, the, the segment, the uh, looker, uh, I don't categorize them in any product that does have anything with data other than uh, like uh, visualization, but segment, uh, it was a good example, but what has changed is the demand for these requests, it's coming from, you know, we already talked about what set of use cases. Yeah. Uh, like if segments solve for like five or 10% of use cases for GTM teams, there's a whole large number of uh, unsolved cases that gets unmet by any tool. And that's why these products exist, right? So there's a need for ownership of these processes outside of the data team as well. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Boris and, you know, Pages, you can speak to this. Like your mind centers will be different from the traditional uh, data teams, right? The traditional uh, yeah. mind centers of the traditional ETL products. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. I think I think your point. Both of you are saying like there's this democratization occurring, yeah. right? Of okay. skill, of skill. And listen, I, I you talk about buying, right, Trudy? Like I, I think the journey of SaaS for 20 years now is this is this empowerment of individuals and teams that are not, you're talking about data teams. It used to be that all your software was bought by the CIO, right? Like period, and deployed by your CIO and in the <laughs> office, in a physical office somewhere from that, right? And people used to call it shadow IT and all these things. But but broadly speaking, it's about having more choice, more autonomy, and and different sets of teams being able to make decisions about what tools they want to use. And I, I, you know, this is where, you know, like I've been at this for technically a decade, if you factor in my previous company, which was all about kind of democratizing access to SaaS. I think this is, this is the journey we're still on as an industry is, is letting individuals and teams make decisions about software while like where, and they can, and using it to the best of their ability. In other words, with the best data 
from the trusted source, right? But our job has to be to create the right, you know, let's call it guardrails and availability of that data, not to prevent individual teams, whether that's a sales team or a content marketing team, doesn't matter, to make choices about what tools they want to use, right? And, you know, the analogy I like to use about this, now I'm going to really frame myself as a, as, as, as a child of the 80s, but like video games used to work like this too. So in the 80s, like video games were not purchased by the children who played them. They were selected and purchased by parents. And, and therefore, they were marketed to parents. Things that people don't remember this, but they were marketed to, to like mom and dad as like safe, fun games. And that all changed in the 90s and into the 2000s, where we now, you know, have, you know, more violent games, more sports-like games that are more for the, the, the you know, let's say the user. But the reason we could do, but the reason we could do that, right? The, there are these necessary pieces that had to come into existence, like ESRB ratings and, and like app stores and, 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 and controls from the, the game makers, you know, so that you couldn't just install whatever game on your console. And so that is where the building blocks. And so SaaS is to me a similar journey just for, you know, the worker in the IT world. And so, so yeah, Trudy, uh, to answer your question, like, yeah, the buyer's not going to be this centralized, massive team. The, the data team just has to have the right visibility, observability in our platforms so that they can let everybody else, you know, kind of select and, 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 and do what they want. That, that's kind of how I'm and, and you know, when I want an analogy, you know, with those, like even the, 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 the kids purchases, it's still parents have some supervision, right? Exactly. Exactly. Well, thank trust. And governance. Yeah, exactly. It's trust, yeah. but verify. So governance will, I think we're at the early days of that, but I think, yeah, that's going to become key to all of our platforms is to make sure there's, there's reasonable governance. Yeah. And I, I think something really interesting here is something that uh, Trudy actually brought up earlier, um, which is that when you said, what does the product have to do versus what does the user have to do? I think about it like a little differently, like almost an extension of that, where the product is also the infrastructure that the company is is building, right? So it's it's not just what is the high such product have to do, but it's what does the data warehouse have to do? What is that upstream versus what does the user have to do? I mean, I think that balance, like striking that balance in the application is like, you know, the winning formula to enabling business teams to be able to leverage this data. So as much as possible, if, if reverse ETL and data activation platforms can, you know, tap into tools like in the observability space or you know, leverage models from the transformation space or, or do a lot of things outside of their product that taps into the overall infrastructure that kind of the, the technical teams, the data teams are putting forth in an organization, then that makes it a lot easier for business teams to come in and solve these cases in a self-service capacity without actually building more product features and reverse detailed tools itself. So I think that's a really um, interesting trend that we're seeing. One thing is with, with the CD players, everything was kind of in a proprietary ecosystem where Let's say you wanted a data transformation feature. CDP had to build a data transformation feature in it. Let's say you wanted observability on, on data ingestion. A CDP had to build, you know, observability into its platform. With reverse ETL and the data warehouse sort of first approach, these can be solved by the ecosystem of players that all interrupt and build on top of the data warehouse instead of necessarily one vendor. And a lot of these problems that could be solved by the product can now be solved by the kind of technical infrastructure and analytics infrastructure that a company has in place which I think is, is just super powerful. So business users don't have to think about any of that stuff. Uh, the comment you, you just have a question on that, you know, like we touched upon this and like, it, there seems to be a common theme that reverse ETL somehow has to be tied to the data warehouse or data lake as a store. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's broader than that, that it can go beyond like any centralized repository of data where I you, you, you know, and so, oh, okay. I just want to get your thoughts and largely, 
uh, process your thoughts. Like, uh, when we said reverse ETL, like, yeah, because ETL has been traditionally tied with the data warehouse, it may uh, indicate that a reverse ETL always uh, has to have the data warehouse. Yeah, it can be NDN, right? Like, as a repository, right? It can be uh, like a customer data hub or my data hub as a repository. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I think all of our products support lots of different sources, yeah. right? But I think the the goal is, I think we, if as an industry, we end up with a variety of sources and a variety of destinations and no central cleaning and, and deduplication and kind of uh, unification in the core somewhere, we're going to make great companies who make lots of money, and, but we will not actually have moved the kind of the industry forward. And I think this is, to me, the, where we need to land in the end, right? Is that you have, remember what I said at the beginning about like, the goal is to have data, you, you know, the best data, data you can trust, right? In the tools that you want to use. And I think you should be able to use any tool you want, but the data you can trust is key. And if you don't have some amount of centralization somewhere in the company, then this, I don't know how to make that happen. Like to me, you get trust through central, some centralization and some federation, right? But that's just how, that's always, that's why our product is called Census, by the way. Like it's because exactly that was the intent. Um, Boris, uh, completely agree. But you know, the, 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 the data you can trust, like from a, uh, a like business and analytics standpoint, maybe data warehouse, but for like, uh, like for example, MDM, right? The master data management platforms or uh, customer data, product data, right? That may be the system of truth. It's not the data warehouse. The same goes for, I, yeah. I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. I, I think the, 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 Every SaaS product I've ever interacted with, and I think Tej is smiling because he's had the same reaction, is like every SaaS product I've ever interacted with in some form on their website says something about the system of record for X. For X. Take your pick. I think Drift once said we're the system of record for chats or something like that. And I was like, what? Uh, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I, I swear, I think it said something like that once. Uh, and so I think, Trudy, I am totally on board with you know using a source that your company has fully bought into, like this is the truth, right? Then it's great. Then it's great. But in my experience, the reason people tend to gravitate to the warehouse and why we made early on a pretty hard decision to like bias towards these kinds of platforms, not to the exclusion of others, but to like as our primary bias is that they have infinite storage and infinite join capability, right? And and like that, and to just point, you can use the ecosystem for that. You're not tied to a single vendor making sure that it supports open source, right? And so I think that, if you can get that out of something else, then great. Like, we'll, we'll, we'll you know we'll support that as a source too, right? But that 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 to me is the important part is that you can you can join all data somewhere that matters. I agree with uh, that fully, but I, I would also add that I think the even more important part is that you have data at rest somewhere in an organization that that you know your business team simply are using. So I think I, I think data that you can trust is definitely a huge part of, course, of the value. Of, of course, you know of these things. But the biggest thing is that before solutions like Hytheter before like data activation before reverse ETL, people just weren't using the data at all, right? There's so much, you know, such a wealth of data and a lot of a lot of the companies yeah. we work yeah. that wasn't I think the but the, the central premise, right? Tejas between agree how we approach this is like you, you you're not connecting Zendesk to Salesforce right now. For sure. Right? Neither For sure. are we. And and so I think and 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 Tree, like I think there's tons of data in Zendesk that can go into Salesforce and it does. And and I think that's great. But 
potentially keeps you away from coalescing on something that is that is uh, like more trustworthy. I don't think that's Obvious. wrong for yeah. some use cases. Correct. Agreed. I don't think Truth tangents. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Like, of course. Like, that goes without saying. That goes without saying. Yeah, we were, think, we were actually talking about that. Like a pipeline that doesn't make sense for someone to build or really for like... Like animals? animals? Well, no, no, no. I mean, just like an example is like, okay, you have, you know, leads and Salesforce and you want to sync those to Google Ads because there's certain data, right? And it's like, okay, well, no one wants to manage that <laughs> pipeline. Great. Like Google and Salesforce built it. So you can just reverse ET all the data points in there and then great, right? So there are like point-to-point connections where it's like, this is awesome because like no one has to manage this. These two enterprise companies like built an integration and this is awesome. Like, great. Like connect the tools and the data teams like, and yeah. the actual operational teams don't have to deal with it. And like, yeah. that is very convenient. And if certain- every app, if every app on earth was perfectly connected to every other app on earth. Sure. That, right, right. We're talking yeah. about Salesforce and Google ads, right? Like, yeah, they, sh- they should. But those are, and, but Salesforce and Google ads is great. What happens is Facebook, you know? <laughs> well, but even, yeah. even if we only focus on Salesforce and Google ads, that integration has all sorts of limitations. It can sure. only sync, I think, the last 90 days. Like, they all have limitations, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Agreed. It takes this point from way earlier. Like, do you think the staff, senior staff engineers at Salesforce are working on that problem? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> right, but it, so. but it is like totally a cost benefit for the data teams working inside a company where it's like, great, we're just going to offload that, right? Like, we can accept the limitations. I mean, our, our goal as software vendors and data integration should be able to make it as easy to, yeah. to do that as you can do it in the Salesforce UI, yeah. yep. but perfectly on top of the data warehouse. Exactly. I really think that's possible. Absolutely. Totally agree. Yeah. And there's also a matter of like expressivity, to be honest. Like you can move data from something like Zendesk to Salesforce, right? Like you can do it with Zapier. Yeah. Uh, you can do it with Zendesk natively. You don't even need it. Yeah, 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 exactly. But the, 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 the whole point of like working with data is like, how we can take whatever data points that we have that they store probably in almost, let's say, an infinite amount of like implicit information in there and make it explicit so we can push it and use it somehow. And to do that, Mm. processing environment, right? And these processing environments, like humanity so far has decided that's going to be like a database system. Like they are built for the division, right? Uh, Separation of concerns. Yep. So unless the things that we have to do are like super trivial, like, okay, someone signed up. Okay. Let's send this somewhere. Okay. Fine. Yep. But anything more than that, that requires some kind of like business logic to be built there and be executed on top of the data in order like to derive something, it needs to happen somewhere. And that's all the pipeline that will do that. Right. Like it's a great I point. I mean, I like, guess once the context time, is right. in point to point, the context is decided for you. Right. Like, right. Yeah. Well, it's context, but also like, I think we, we all know history here, right? Once upon a time, you had to put the logic into the pipe because of literal computing constraints. Like, yeah. like going back to, you know, we, we actually had limited ability to, to, to move all the data around. So luckily we now live, that's a, a, a genuine shift technologically, right? Like now we no longer have to pre like compute on the fly or as we move. Right. So, so that is one thing where we can clearly show before and after where compute costs went sufficiently down that we could just store everything and then compute after. But you're right, Ghost. Eventually, you're going to need to compute in some form. People might not realize they're computing. I-, I found that people who use Excel don't realize that they're programmers, when in reality, Excel is the world's most popular functional yeah. language by far. 
Sure. You know, for all the Haskell developers out there, like actually Excel, those are, that's <laughs> a good one. Yeah, it's office, the union, the point. Uh, I just want to be very clear about this. And I wish you mentioned Workado instead of Zapier, that would be nice, but I'll get to the point. It's uh, like the sending the Salesforce integration. But uh, the example that it brought about, like, let's say, you know, I go to get uh, the Gibson system register as a user, as a lead, right? And uh, there is a, like, the reverse ETL is not a catch all for everything. The lead getting to an SDR and AE in real time, it's a very different flow that requires some integration automation, which may not even touch uh, like any data on your house, right? It needs to happen in real time because somebody in SDR needs to respond to me in less than five minutes, right? We do that with our production database. What's that? that? Actually, we actually do that with a replica of our... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm just saying, I'm just saying that's where, you know, they're, they're different nature. The, the other part is like, once you've collected all these leads and say you wanted to do a reactivation campaign or such, right? And that data is in the data warehouse and say, hey, let's reach out to these leads. They were interested in some point in time, but it never went somewhere. And you need to move that data into uh, your like mobs tool kind of thing. That's where reverse ETL comes in. So there's a place for both. Yeah. Uh, there's a place for both. And again, the tool of choice will depend on, you know, what the user is trying to solve for. Uh, but there's a place for both why Zendesk and Salesforce integration need to act and regardless of uh, whether it's either Zendesk or Salesforce as the most reliable source of customer data or not. Yeah. It's a great point. Okay. We are, we're close to the buzzer here. So we didn't get to talk about a, a number of things that I would have loved to, but we need to do Q and A and wrap it up here. Okay. So we'll just do a couple of quick questions here. The first one, which is, which is super interesting is there was discussion around, I'll give a little context here, or I'll, I'll read some context into the question. There was discussion around the change in technology, right? So you know, products like personas were built before the warehouse had sort of come of age, as it were, right? So the question is, the, the, the technical ability of roles has changed, right? So a marketer, you know, 10 years ago was far less technical, or most of them were far less technical than today, right? And even salespeople, right? And sort of the appetite for like different interesting types of data that help them do their job. How does that influence the way you're building your product, right? Not only has the tech changed, but like the users is like, you know, marketers are, are very data centric. Salespeople are becoming more data centric. How's that influencing the way that you're building your products? Yeah, it's tremendous responsibility. No, I, I mean that like it's right. We, we, we get to see and foster basically a, you know, an upgrade in skill. And to me, you know, I think a lot about you know, when you, you don't learn just computer science by learning, you know, like how to, how to write a, a Git commit, right? Like you, you, there's theory related to that. And I find that the, the, I've always framed census to our users as not a data pipeline, but more of a data deployment tool, right? Where I'm trying to teach you certain aspects of software engineering without calling it that. And, and so to your point, like marketers, people on data teams are all becoming dramatically more, you know, savvy. Like DBT has led the way in terms of teaching people how to like check in their SQL models. Like that's, a, people think that that's like no big deal, but it's actually huge, right? And we're at the infancy of that. We're at point, you know, of those 5 million LinkedIn SQL people, we're probably at a teeny, teeny, tiny fraction who know about version control, right? So, so I think of it as it's a super exciting and it's like, it's kind of a responsibility. I feel like we're teachers as well as like in, engaging with them on these, uh, these ways. So, so there's a lot of, you know, kind of integration, like we, we, 
long ago integrated with like, you know, the airflows and, and prefects of the world, right? So that, you know, we can, so that we can help marketers or, or analysts or data teams who want to plug into their, you know, kind of modern infrastructure can, right? So, so yeah. yeah, I think it's, it's totally informs how we think about our cool All right. philosophy. Oh, go for it. I was going to say Tritty and then, and then Tejas, and then we'll do one more question to end it out. Yeah, I'll just add it again. Like uh, what Boris said, it's a tremendous responsibility, but it's like for, like from a Mercado standpoint, it has been always like recognizing that fact that people are changing. It's not that their skills and their needs are not static, right? It's changing and they want to do more. But at the same time, you know, taking the technology uh, barriers, the skills, uh, the friction to learn and adapt out of the way and making them successful faster, right? So that's what we focus on. And then also the second part is not put them in a box. Like if they want to do more, the platform should give them to the, the ability to do more, right? So it's a balance. It's a, it's a very hard balance it's thread, but that's a, it's an important one that the, the role of empowering more, more people to do, to do things and also providing the right controls so they do it responsibly. Yeah, totally agree with everything that's been said. I think there's kind of a balancing act between two chains of thoughts in our in our product organization and, and we're pushing on both axes and then they both balance each other out. One of them is like, how do we empower more people in an organization to actually perform reverse ETL? So, you know, a decade ago, engineers are the only ones building the scripts to move data from the data warehouse to, or, or people trade in like a MuleSoft or something super technical to move data from the data warehouse into all these different systems. Now, you know, we're allowing data analysts to you Next, we're going to want marketing ops to you. Next, we might even want some you know, marketers on the team, depending on the technical level, to be able to do so. And, and on that train of thought, we, we ship new features like audiences that allow marketers to come in and kind of build segments on top of the data warehouse and sync those out to different tools, basically performing reverse ETL without necessarily knowing all the, the ins and outs of SQL. On the other hand, we also, the other kind of train of thought that we're pushing that, that balances the first one out of, of empowering business users in our product organization is really this philosophy of like taking all the principles and all the tribal knowledge that software engineers have and, and the processes that they have. So version control, you know, observability, visibility, staging environments, kind of pushing the staging before production. And our, our goal at Hightouch is think, okay, what, what would the best, if the best software engineering team ever was to build like, a, you know, a script from, or a platform from moving data from the data warehouse into something like Salesforce, what would they build? And, and they'd have all of those things as a part of their, uh, 12 principles of deployment or whatever it is. And how do we make all those, those aspects of a really strong data pipeline available to kind of the less technical users, whether it's data analyst, marketing ops, marketer, without them having to know all about it. And I think if you look at our application product features like Git Sync, so the ability to be just using the Hydrus product as usual, then everything you're doing, all the configuration to be bi-directionally synced with like a GitHub repo is a really powerful step in that direction where you don't have to understand it all to start, but now you can start seeing the commits you're making. And then if you need to make a bulk change, you know, you can do that in code as well, but you can also just use the application as is. So, all right, last question guys. And uh, hopefully like I can make you promise that we will do that again in the future because we have like more stuff to chat about and we need more time, but I'd like to hear from like all of you, like one thing that yeah, you are anticipating like to come in this category and that makes you like really, really excited. So let's start with Boris. What's coming that I'm really excited. I mean, there's so much, um, sorry, I'm assuming this is not a, this is not a, like, 
we'll talk more about like what's happening in our ecosystem rather than just in our in our products. But I think the the warehouses keep getting better, right? And that is it just enables more possibility, right? So, you know, what if you think back to when we when we started the company, we we liked the warehouse because it had infinite, effectively near infinite storage. And we could use it as both a source and a destination. We could actually write our 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 information into the warehouse. That way we could, you know, kind of do diffs. Like I think incremental six is like a table stakes thing. It's like that shouldn't be some fancy feature. And but we can do so much more given the capabilities of the warehouse, right? And again, when you have separated workloads and infinite storage, like there's just so much you can do in terms of being able to create more observability, more kinds of transforms. There are new SQL functions that still come out, right? Like that are kind of really fun for people. I, I hope to teach people about certain approximation functions that are actually kind of neat, but for story for another day. And of course, they're all getting more real-time, more centralized, more merged across the, the, you know, the lake, the warehouse, the real-time systems. And I don't think they're ever going to perfectly intersect, right? Yep. But the beauty of the, the most of business, like most of business, save of like a very small set of things, can really handle what I would call our version of like re real world, real time, which is not computer real time. It's like, you know, seconds, not microseconds. And I think there, the warehouses are really getting there. And, and that I think will unlock so many scenarios in terms of, you, 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 you even gave that example, Costa, right? You said there's some things where it's like, oh, they signed up, right? And but other things where you, you know you need to 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 do some computation. It's like you should not have to make that trade-off. Anything that happens, you want to be able to compute on it, and you want to be able to you know operationalize it. You should be able to do. And, and I think that's why I think we're 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 just in a fun era of kind of warehousing and let's call it data storage and computation just getting better every year. And, and so I think it's just just a fun time to be in our space. Yeah, and more accessible. Actually, more yeah, accessibility. I think is a great way to think about it. Yep, yep. That that's great. Really, your turn. And I'd love to hear also, like, from your perspective, because you are coming from the more enterprise space. So, what do you see there? Yeah, I have like ETL became a thing, not because ETL was uh, people romanticize ETL because ETL was such a cool technology. What uh, drove the rise of ETL, or now what's trending towards ELD? is uh, uh, a rapid appetite for consuming data, the, well, the, you know, the data-driven decisions, the business intelligence side of things. Uh, so the exciting thing, like with uh, the reverse ETL trend and what will propel it to what ETL has been for the last uh, 30, 40 years, is the trend that we see in enterprises with this called like going from big data, which drone ETL, to big ops. Everything that we are talking about, you know, reverse ETL is just a way to, to move data from one place to another. But at the end of it, GTM teams are trying to convert leads faster, right? launch campaigns, more effective campaigns, right? Product teams are trying to drive growth with product-led growth and, you know, drive better experiences. Customer experience teams are doing the same things using data, right? So the big ops is the next big thing and reverse ETL will play a big role in that. I'll leave it that. That's, and that's a trend that we see in enterprises. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. That's a very interesting term, big ops. So that's, that sounds uh, great. Tejas, your turn. Cool. Yeah, I mean, honestly, on, on the technical front, I think uh, Boris and I are thinking alike here. I'm really excited for the data warehouses to 
just get better and better. I think streaming data warehouses is something we've always been excited about. There's some players like Materialize that are, you know, building the ability to to give a, a SQL database a view that's defined in SQL. And as the data comes in, it's incrementally processed so that a system like Hightouch, for example, could just subscribe to that and automatically forward, you know, what cohort or what audience the user is in based on a SQL formula to all these downstream tools. And, and while that's not innovation in Hightouch, that unlocks, you know, massive potential for Hightouch to be used for use cases like on-site personalization in real time that, you know, it's it's harder to use Hightouch for today, as kind of uh, Trudy mentioned. But on the reverse ETL product front, I think really what I'm excited about is just more the design aspect of things, actually. I think a big bottleneck to making reverse ETL and data activation the big thing and, and allowing all companies to use it to actually drive more value from the data is just making it easier to use. So I, I can't wait until there's, you know, when every business user in an organization feels like just like how they can open a link to like a tableau dashboard that someone hands them and, and they see see the graph on it. Like I, I can't wait till they have a problem like, oh, I wish I had this data point in this tool or I wish I could grab users that meet this criteria and they can walk into a data activation tool that they have never used before in the organization. It kind of uh, gets connected to the resources that exist around uh, the company quickly, pulls metadata from all these different systems and, and helps guide that user through actually solving their business level use case. And I think a lot of the innovation in the space outside of the technical firm will actually just be on the design of the products and yep. making it really accessible and separating technical concerns from business concerns so that business people who identify a problem can just like solve that problem. And um, yep. that's where we spend a lot of our headspace, honestly. And uh, I think it's it's a function of both marketing. Reverse ETL is not the most accessible term to, to everyone, as well as product and partnerships. And that's what I'm most excited about. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I think, I mean, we don't have time today, but there are a couple of things that we didn't want us like to touch and discuss about today. And I think one of the most interesting is the users behind yeah. who is mainly affected by uh, reverse ETL. What are the personas? Like, what do you see there? Like, and Boris, like, you, you mentioned like these 5 million people there that they know SQL, but they are not technical, right? Like but what's the journey? Yeah. What's what's the journey to enable these people like to do more with less technology? Like yeah, less yeah, technical, uh, yeah. Uh, no, I think you know the the they don't just hire us for moving bits, right? Like they're hiring us uh, as a piece of software, but they're, they're they're trying to increase their impact, do more with their data. Like that's exactly yeah. yeah. Just a moment, I thought, you know, he just mentioned two things that triggered some thoughts on this. First, he mentioned one thing that was very important, like it's that like you bring in a tool, like the tool, but how it fits into your overall data strategy or how you're thinking about data in the company. And the second part, like you just mentioned about this, about like the ability to publish and subscribe like events, right? And that's a trend like we see in enterprises, which is this event-driven architecture, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not. It's not just connecting your like data warehouse cloud or whatnot to uh, the business applications, but the ability to like stream events, right? To yep. a bus and then consume it uh, across various subscribers. The decouple that architecture, that's a big trend as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, that, and, and again, the maturity levels across enterprises varies, but that's definitely the trend. Yep. Yep. Makes, makes a lot totally. of sense. 
Someone tried to say something and I think interrupted. I was going to say, and no. I think it's time. I think to, we're way over time, Eric. <laughs> we're, at, we're way over time, but I think, you know, I'll, I'll try to summarize at least one of my primary takeaways. What's so interesting to me is that res, reverse ETL is, it's almost a misnomer in that it's just sort of moving the data. It's moving the data, right? Like it's a pipeline and it sort of describes like a flow of data. And what we're talking about here is, is far, far deeper than that, you know, and, and impacts the organization as a whole. And I think reflects changes in the industry as represented by both technology and then, you know, the, the changing skill sets of people. And so this has been a true treat to hear about how everyone's thinking about that. So thank you again. Thank you for going long. And let's do this again and dig into users. And then, of course, we didn't get to synthetic events, my favorite topic when it comes to reverse ETL. So we'll do it again in another couple of months. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Thank you, guys. We get to talk to some super smart people, Costas, which is honestly like maybe one of the highlights of my week. Just like just being able to ask good questions or, or at least what I think are good questions or at least my own curiosities to, to these brilliant people building stuff. I think what was so interesting was we really didn't you know, if you went back and listened to that conversation and you didn't have the context for it, you might not necessarily think it was solely centered on reverse ETL, right? And we actually didn't talk about sort of like the actual technical flow of data from like a row in a warehouse table to, you know, like a field and some sort of downstream tool. And I mentioned this at the end, like reverse ETL is like a, it's a strange term in that way, right? Because it, the way that they're thinking about this problem is so much more comprehensive than, you know, just sort of a basic pipeline that's moving data from A to B. So yeah, it made me even, it made me think even more about, you know, your point that the name for this maybe is, is not a great name. What'd you take away? Yeah, it's not a great name. My main takeaway is that we really need to spend like more time with these folks, like discussing about not just like reverse ETL, but the whole, let's say, transformation that the data infrastructure is going through right now. Like, for example, you saw that one of the most exciting things they talked about were, was about the latest developments in data warehousing, right? And like, what mm. does this mean? Or what it means to have like so many people out there that they know or they say that they know SQL, but they are not like technical, right? And we still have like so many people that they technically are doing functional programming through Excel sheets, but still they are not using like all these amazing technologies that we are talking. Yeah. So the potential is obviously like huge out there and we are still very, very early. And what I... I'd like to add, like, to what you said about, like, speaking with very smart people. I would say that, like, what I find, like, extremely fascinating is that it's not just, like, they are smart people. They are also, like, highly motivated people. Hmm. That's what makes, like, things even more interesting because we have people that are trying to change the way that we are working with data. And it's very early. So... I don't know. I find it like, how to say that, as an amazing opportunity to take a glimpse in the future when we can get like all these people together and like chat with them. So hopefully we'll be able like, to do it more often in the future. I agree. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. Lots of great recordings coming up. So make sure to subscribe and we will catch you on the next DataSack show.
We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Data Stack Show. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app to get notified about new episodes every week. We'd also love your feedback. You can email me, Eric Dodds, at eric at datastackshow.com. That's E-R-I-C at datastackshow.com. The show is brought to you by Rudderstack, the CDP for developers. Learn how to build a CDP on your data warehouse at rudderstack.com. <laughs>